We're reading from two passages this morning. The first is from Zechariah chapter 9, beginning at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout and triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have the hope. This very day I am declaring that I will restore double to you. Verse 16. And the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they are as the stones of a crown sparkling in his land. For what comeliness and beauty will be theirs? Grain will make the young men flourish and new wine, the virgins. Our second passage is in Revelation chapter 21, the first six verses. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you have brought us here together once again. Lord, it's a mercy that we can do this. We can do it openly. We can do it in such a large group, Lord. Uh, It's a mercy of yours that we get to see these faces of the people we love, the people of God, again and again each week. Lord, I pray that you will reveal to us through this message, Lord, through the reading of your word, something new and incredible about you, Lord, or refresh in our minds something that we already knew, Lord, renew us daily, Lord, especially, Lord, as we come together to hear teaching about your word, Lord. I thank you that you came once triumphantly and that you're coming again triumphantly, Lord, and that you will make all things right. In your holy name I pray, amen. Good morning on this Palm Sunday. One of the great paradoxes in the Bible is the event known as the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem in A.D. 33. And what makes it 
so paradoxical is, is the incredible transformation that occurred in the people's response to Jesus between Sunday and Thursday. On Sunday, as you know, Jesus, as, and as we just talked about in the worship, Jesus came into the city, the city of the great king, to great fanfare. The, the people were adoring him publicly. But by Thursday, the same multitude was calling for his crucifixion. And of course, they got what they asked for. On Friday, Jesus was nailed to a cross between two criminals outside the city, and he died on that cross. It doesn't sound like much of a triumph for the king of all creation, does it? But we know that it was. It was not just a triumph, it was the greatest triumph in the history of God's creation. And this morning we're going to consider what what it was that made the triumphal entry a triumph. And we're going to look forward, we're going to look forward to another time that's coming, (laughs) to another triumphal entry. And you'll see what we mean when we get there. Now why did the people of Jerusalem initially welcome Jesus so enthusiastically? Many of you know that more than a thousand years before Jesus came from heaven to earth the first time, God made an extraordinary promise to the second king in Israel, King David. The king that he later said was the king after his own heart, a man after his own heart. He told David that from his descendants he would raise up a king who would reign on his throne over his kingdom forever. Forever. Isaiah chapter 9 talks about that, that same descendant of David. This is uh, one of the most well-known prophecies in the Old Testament, in part because of Handel's Messiah. Isaiah writes, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and, his, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts has accomplished this. What a promise. A king, the king sent from God who would reign in perfect righteousness and justice. And he would do so, we find out from other prophecies, over the entire earth, not just over Israel. In the Psalms and the prophetic books, the prophets of God spoke over and over of the city of Jerusalem as the seat of that great king's government. They called it the city of the great king. In Psalm chapter 48, verses 1 and 2, Korah writes, Great is great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. The city of the great king. God in her palaces has made Himself known as a stronghold. Now, 
I have no doubt that Korah had, it, had David in mind at some level when he, when he spoke of the city of the great king, but I also am confident that he had that future king in mind. And that when he's speaking of, of Zion as the marvelous place from which, the, the place that will become the joy of the entire earth, he's talking about the domain of Messiah, the promised, the long promised king in the line of David. The prophets were still calling this coming king David hundreds of years after David had died. Ezekiel 34, 36, 37, many other passages speak of, of the coming David. And they're talking about the one promised in his line who would reign forever. In the days just before Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a young male donkey, just as Zechariah had prophesied, in the passage that Nathan read from Zechariah chapter 9, the city of Jerusalem had become all abuzz with talk of this man, Jesus, a man of Nazareth, a man apparently from the line of David, a man who had been healing all kinds of diseases, who had been casting out demons, who had just days before his entry into Jerusalem raised a man from the dead, a man named Lazarus, a friend of his, who had been dead for four whole days in a tomb. John tells us in his Gospel that that the people that witnessed the raising of Lazarus were giving testimony to, to this amazing thing that they had observed. They were in Jerusalem. Why were they in Jerusalem? Well, everybody was in Jerusalem because it was the beginning, it was the preparation for the Passover feast, which required that Jews come to the central sanctuary. Many in Jerusalem were earnestly hoping that this was indeed the long-promised King of Kings, of whom the prophets had repeatedly spoken. As Jesus approached the gates, the people laid down palm branches and many of them even laid down their own cloaks, their own clothing on the ground to serve as a royal carpet for the king as he came into the city. They greeted him with the word, Hosanna. Originally, the, that word meant please save. But by the, time, by the time this event occurred, it had come to mean the one who saves. And so they were saying in effect, here's the Savior. Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They, they loudly proclaim Jesus as the Son of David, the King of Israel. And Mark's Gospel says that some in the crowd cried out, Blessed is the coming Kingdom of David. See, there's no doubt. It was crystal clear that the people in Jerusalem thought that this man was the long-promised Messiah. And of course they were right, for so he was. But there was a fatal flaw in their expectations. My brother Eric this morning talked about expectations that disappoint. And that flaw in their expectation ensured that they would quickly turn on Jesus, which they did. They had pushed aside a critically, vitally important piece of the prophecies that had been given concerning Messiah. The part of the prophecies that said that before he would rule as an exalted king, he would come as a suffering servant. 
And He would come in order to pay for the sins of His people. Isaiah 52.13-53.12 15 verses that lay out the entire Gospel in the Old Testament 700 years before Jesus came. They speak of the exaltation of Christ. But before that exaltation is realized, they speak of His humiliation. That He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their face, He was despised and we did not esteem Him. And then Isaiah writes, Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. But we considered Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace fell upon Him and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. See, it's substitution. Him for us. And it says it over and over and over in that passage. And then it says that He died. And then it says that He was buried in the tomb of a rich man. And then it says God prolonged His days. How does that happen? Well, He had to be resurrected. This was not somehow hidden or cloaked. If you read Isaiah 52.13-53.12, to the plain sense of the words tells you that it's prophesying a man about whom all these things would be true. I don't want to get too sidetracked, but you can go on YouTube and you can look up, look up a video of young Jews who have come to faith in Christ standing in Jerusalem and asking fellow Jews to read that passage and watching their response. And there's one young man in that passage who after reading the passage, the, the young man that handed him the, the passage says to him, who do you think that's talking about? And he starts crying and he says, it's talking about my Messiah. It's talking about Jesus. The Jews in Jerusalem ignored that. In fact, that passage had been systematically ignored in the synagogues leading up to the time of Jesus. The Jewish multitude loved the idea of a king who would heal all their diseases and end hunger and poverty. They loved the idea of a king who would, who would make right all of the injustice and who would finally set them free from the long list of nations that had treated them as subordinates, as slaves. They loved the idea of a king who would restore Israel to her, to her place as God's own people, greatest among all the nations as it was in David's day. But their fatal assumption, friends, is that they thought they deserved all that. And they thought that this king was supposed to come and give them all that when there was no change in their hearts. Jesus entered that day the gates of a city that was utterly, completely unworthy of creation's king, just like all the other cities on earth. Everything that happened in the city after the fanfare surrounding His entrance proved their unworthiness. Jesus knew exactly what He would find when He came into the city. As He drew near to the gates of the city and began to just look around inside the city gates, He began to weep 
Luke tells us in Luke 19, he said, he's talking to Jerusalem, he's talking to the city. He said, if you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. These people wanted peace, but not the peace that Jesus came to give to them the first time. Not the peace that they had to be given in order to dwell in the kingdom of Messiah. The peace they wanted was life without conflict, without poverty, without injustice, without pain, without the threat of enemy nations coming in and taking them captive. Those were some of the things that the prophets had said that Messiah would do. See, it wasn't that they were wrong in attaching those promises to Messiah. It's that they missed what it would take for those promises to be given to them. Something else had to come first. Jesus went on, He said, of the city of the great King, for days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children with you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Their King, their Messiah, rode into their city on the back of a donkey and they redefined Him to comply with their expectations. And when they didn't get what they wanted, everything changed. Jesus decreed a fierce coming judgment against the very city whose inhabitants had just acknowledged Him as their long-promised King. How's that for winning friends and influencing people? (laughs) Now, when Jesus addressed the city in this way, he He was speaking in the same mode as the great prophets of old had been speaking for a very long time. And this is, to me, this is a fascinating truth. The prophets very often spoke of a city as if it was the personification of all of the people in it. Ever since God gave Adam dominion over his earth, God has always declared an unbreakable connection between place and people. He's always seen the people and the place as sharing one character. Each place is defined by the beliefs and affections and actions of the people who dwell in it. And so God said to Jonah, Arise and go up to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ash because of the wickedness of the inhabitants of those cities. Now the God of glory came in person into the city that was supposed to be defined by its allegiance and obedience to Him. The city above all other cities that should have received Him as both Savior and King because they had the prophetic word. And he declared that city utterly unworthy of him. The people of Jerusalem longed for their long-promised king, but they simply would not hear the truth about their own unworthiness to be subjects of his kingdom. They longed 
for the Savior of whom the prophets had written, but they despised the salvation that he came to give to them. The salvation that demanded that they admit their unworthiness, their sin. And so they demanded his crucifixion. But little did they know that that their condemnation of the king of heaven and earth would be the very means by which salvation would be offered to many of them, many in that same city. Many people in Jerusalem became followers of Christ in short order after the resurrection. And no doubt, many of those people had been calling for his crucifixion. In an unthinkable irony, the king of heaven and earth was taken outside the city of the great king to be crucified because the temple authorities didn't want his blood to desecrate their city. They crucified the only holy man who had ever set foot in that city. And they took him outside the city to do it. That revealed a whole lot about the character of Jerusalem at that point. The real triumph of the triumphal entry of Jesus came as the last life-sustaining drop of his life-giving blood fell to the earth outside the city. And he spoke one final word. Finished. The infinite price for the salvation of men and women and children had been paid in full. Friends, that precious blood is the one and only qualification that any man or woman or child will ever have to dwell in the presence of Jesus in His kingdom. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of David, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You can't have part of that King. You have to receive all that is declared of Him. As the body of Jesus was removed from that blood-stained cross, some Roman soldier also removed a plaque that Pilate had ordered tacked to the cross that said the King of the Jews. And so he was. But he was the king of far more than that. To the eyes of fallen men, the death of Jesus looked like the ultimate defeat. It appeared to be compelling proof that this man was king of nothing. But the Apostle Paul explains the victory that was actually won that day. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, Paul says, And when you were dead, all of you, when you were dead, me too, in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Paul starts out talking to Gentiles and he says, You, uncircumcised in the flesh. And then he says, us too, us Jews. He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile toward us. 
having nailed it to the cross. And listen to this. This is glorious. When He, Jesus, suspended on a cross, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them having triumphed over them through Christ. God triumphed over the, over the, the rulers of darkness through the death of His Son. Isn't that marvelous? They believed, the people, Pilate, the Jewish officials, the people who had called for Jesus' crucifixion watched and they saw Him nailed to a cross and they thought, this is the worst humiliation that could ever be, could ever be imparted or, or laid upon someone. And, and th- if this man was really the King of Kings, He couldn't have let this happen. It was, it was their vindication. But Paul says he wasn't the one who was put on display that day in the eyes of God. God knew where the real victory was and when Jesus died on that cross, the rulers of darkness, it was as if they had been suspended from the walls of the city for everybody to behold as vanquished. I believe Satan's most zealous desire is to keep lost people lost. To keep them enslaved to sin and to darkness. Satan had tried valiantly to sidetrack Jesus at the very beginning of his earthly ministry from his purpose for coming from heaven to earth, and of course he failed. I've heard many Christians over the years say that they, they think that when Jesus was dying on that cross, Satan was standing on the sidelines, gleeful, just delighted, because he thought that he had, he had utterly defeated his greatest enemy. I have to tell you, I suspect it was just the opposite. See, I think Satan knew the prophets very well. I, I don't think Satan is a dummy, and I think he is a fierce enemy, and I think he knows and knew exactly what was going on. And I think he was he was filled with rage when Jesus said it is finished. I think he knew that he had forever lost the souls of millions of men and women and children who were going to come to faith in Jesus Christ and be forever saved. And it's not just those who believe after the cross. It's all who were justified by faith before the cross. As creation's king hung on that cross in public display to the eyes of men, it was the rulers of darkness who were vanquished. The king of kings had paid the full price to make unworthy sinners who were rebels against God worthy citizens of His kingdom and His city. If you've been trusting in your own goodness or in anything except the blood of Jesus Christ to make you acceptable to the one true, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God, then I ask you to please listen carefully. God commands you to trust in Jesus Christ's perfect payment for your sin at the cross. And it's the only payment available. It is the, it is the only price that can ever be paid to make you right with God. You can't do it. 
You have nothing to offer God. You are dead in your sins until you come to faith in Christ. If you, this very day, right where you sit, will put your faith in Jesus, His blood will cover your sins, past, present, and future, and God will cover you with Christ's own righteousness. And that's how He'll see you from now on and forever. That's the only way unworthy people become worthy as citizens of the city of the great King, the real one. Jesus did not come from heaven to earth to find people who would be worthy to dwell in His kingdom. He had to make people worthy to dwell in His kingdom. He came to die in our place and to be raised from the dead so that, so that we may live with Him. He came to populate His kingdom. See, he couldn't institute his kingdom. He couldn't establish his kingdom on earth when he came the first time because he would have been the only one in it. He had to redeem lost people. And it was his blood that provides that redemption for all who believe in him. The triumph of the triumphal entry didn't happen that Sunday. It happened that Friday Jesus knew before anything existed except God Himself, the triune God, that He would have to die in order for people to dwell with Him in His glorious kingdom. He didn't need any of that. The love of God is this extended, marvelous truth about God that just delights in loving. And as, as our brother Jim Ellis pointed out in his series on the Trinity, Love and communion and fellowship have been the eternal reality of, of God Himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now He's just, He sent Christ to bring others into that by putting us in Christ. This was all orchestrated by God. Any notion whatsoever that the death of Christ sort of took God by surprise or that Jesus just stumbled into it, when he was trying to avoid it, is anti-biblical. In Acts chapter 2, Peter said to this same, to the Jews of this same city, men of Israel, this was the day of Pentecost after Christ's resurrection and ascension, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up, listen, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. Does that sound like it surprised God? And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Jesus came to die. He had to be rejected. Indeed, it was through the rejection of Christ by the people of Jerusalem that many of those same people were eventually saved through faith in the one whose crucifixion they demanded. But that city, just like all the other cities in this world that remained under the curse, is still corrupt. It's still Condemned. And beloved, 
as Christians, as evangelical Christians, we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but we better not be deluded into thinking that the Jews are in Jerusalem in, in faith. They are in Jerusalem in apostasy. They've rejected their Messiah. Yes, I believe that God, that God has a special use and purpose for Jerusalem in the unfolding of His plan of, of redemption and for the Jews. But that doesn't mean that the Jews don't commit the same kinds of grievous sins that all the rest of us commit. Jerusalem is as condemned as Dallas. Most of humanity in every generation has rejected Him just as did Jerusalem. So where, friends, where is the city that is worthy of the great King and of His redeemed people? It's not here yet. That city is not here yet. But it's coming. Jesus has been making that city ready ever since He left the first time. At the beginning of John chapter 14, Jesus said to His disciples, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself so that where I am, you may be also. In Second Peter chapter 3, Peter says that this earth with all of its corrupt cities is going to be burned up. Sodom and Gomorrah was just a preview. That's really bad news for those who haven't put their trust in Jesus. But the really good news is in verse 13 of that chapter for all who have believed in Christ. Peter writes, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Hebrews 11 talks about that same place. It says, by faith Abraham when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived in an, as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. And listen to this. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. While Abraham was in the promised land, God had made it clear to him that that wasn't the end point. He was going to dwell in a city not made with human hands. That was his destiny. Beloved, the final triumphal entry will not be Jesus coming into His city. It will be us, the redeemed of God, coming into the city that Jesus has been preparing for us the city in which we will live together with one another forever with our King. Revelation chapter 3, verse 12 says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. I'm going to read again the first part of Revelation 21. 
And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And the word made ready there is the exact same word that Jesus used in John 14, 6 when He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And He shall dwell among them and they shall be His people and God Himself shall be among them. Beloved, if we went back and looked up every reference, every time that God made that promise in the Old Testament, we would find that it's somewhere in the vicinity of 25 times. It pervades all of the covenant promises that God will raise up a people as His own possession, His own inheritance. He will be their God. They will be His people and He will dwell in their midst forever. That's the central promise of the Bible. That's the end point of the plan of redemption. And He shall wipe every tear from their eyes and there shall no longer be any pain, any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, John, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. The city that Jesus has been preparing has never been touched by fallen human hands and it never will be. It was designed by God. It was created by God. And it will be completely untouched by sin. The long delay in the preparation of that city isn't because it was some kind of great challenge for Jesus. He could have spoken a single word and the city would be ready because He spoke everything in creation into existence by the spoken Word. You know what took so much time? Populating the city with worthy citizens. He could have done that too instantly. But ever since Genesis chapter 1, God has been using human beings as His agents in His creation. And when He saved you and me, He intended to use us as His agents to populate His kingdom. We are here and God has delayed is delayed the finishing out of his plan of redemption until all the nations hear the proclamation of the gospel. Matthew 24:14 Jesus said, "And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to the nations and then the end shall come." Our dear brother Colin stood up here not long ago and he said, "If you want to hasten, if you want to move the timetable closer, you want to hasten the coming of the Lord, go share the gospel with people. Especially people who've never heard it. When Jesus returns for the last time, beloved, He's going to bring His city with Him. And He's going to be here to stay. Here with His people in the new heavens and the new earth, which is also known as the new Jerusalem. You know that city that's 1,500 miles cubed? That is the new heavens and the new earth. That is the reconciliation of the things in heaven with the things on earth. Jesus did not come into Jerusalem to find a city worthy of Him. He had to make a city worthy of Him. 
We're out of time, but let me ask this. Why does all this matter? Well, I have to say it. How could it possibly not matter? There's an old gospel song that says, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. That song is half right and half wrong. It's right about the fact that this cursed world is not our home. We're destined for it, the city of God. But where it's wrong is that we're just passing through. Guys, we're not just passing through. We're not here to coast. We're not here to wait until the Lord comes from the heavens and brings the heavenly city to us. We're here to populate that city. We're here to act as His ambassadors and agents to fill that city with the redeemed saints of God and to spread His temple, His kingdom over the whole earth. That's why we're still here. And if we seriously and and prayerfully ponder the expectations that the people in the city of Jerusalem had of Jesus on the day that He came in to the city in AD 33, we might just find that we're guilty of the same kinds of messed up expectations at some level. They wanted a king who would fix what was lacking in the kingdoms of men. What they got was a king who was going to destroy all the kingdoms of men and usher in his own. They wanted him to fill their city with prosperity and security and peace, but they didn't even want to know the things that make for peace, according to Jesus. Real peace. Peace with God. And peace with men that can only come when you have peace with God. They didn't, didn't want to hear that real security isn't about safety. They didn't want to hear that real prosperity isn't about money and stuff. They wanted a king who would reward their worthiness, not prove their unworthiness. What do we want from our king? Do we want him to give us the same kind of prosperity and control and predictability and safety that the people of Jerusalem were expecting from him? There's a a new DVD out called American Gospel. And you guys need to watch it. It's available in the library. I think Ron has a couple of copies now. And I'd love it if it was checked out and people had to wait over and over to get it. It gives an uncompromising look into the gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity that has infected the professing evangelical church, especially in America. Infected it like a cancer. Why? How did that infection happen? Because the church of Jesus Christ has embraced much of the same mindset as the Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Christ's triumphal entry. The DVD is about the pretended religion of men who value worldly comforts more than they value conformity with Christ. i got to quit, but i, I got to tell you this last thing. I uh, was flipping through some index cards. I write, I have millions of notes on index cards. It's terrible. And I found this quote from 2014 from Dr. Kent Brantley. Anybody recognize that name? He was a medical doctor working with Samaritan's Purse in Liberia, helping Ebola patients, and he contracted the disease. And he was medevac from Liberia to a hospital in Georgia, and they administered what at that point was an experimental regimen, and, and he survived. 
And he is alive and he's still serving Samaritan's Purse today. In 2014, not long after he came out of the hospital, he, of course, was flooded with requests for interviews. And I watched one interview where the interviewer said to him, Dr. Brantley, why didn't your faith keep you from getting Ebola? And what he said was marvelous. Beloved, what he said was revolutionary. What he said turns this upside-down kingdom right side up. He said, my faith is what got me Ebola. He said, faith is not something that makes you safe. Faith in Jesus. What does your faith in Jesus get for you? (laughs) It puts you on the front lines of a spiritual war for the souls of men and women and children every single day. A war in which you you are attacked by a formidable enemy every single day. It puts you right in the trenches of daily life with brothers and sisters in Christ who are every bit as hard to live with as you are. It guarantees that you will be hated by the world because the world hates your Master and Savior. But you know what else it gets you, beloved? It gets you God's bulletproof guarantee that you will spend eternity in His glorious kingdom, in His beautiful city, in the company of the saints and of the living God forever. I ask the question, what do we want from our King? The real question is, what does our King want from us? He saved us. He gave us everything. What does He want from us? He wants us to live as the redeemed saints of the Most High God. He wants us to delight in sharing Him with other people. And there's no reason imaginable that we would not be doing exactly that. This world is not our home, but we are not just passing through. Let's point people to the only worthy King, the only true salvation, the only beautiful city that will be worth living in when all of this is said and done. Loving Father, we thank You. We thank You for the promise of life eternal together with the saints in the very presence and company of our God and Savior. We pray that You will make us bold ambassadors for His sake. Delighted to tell people about Him. And Father, that You will break us of every residue of attachment to this cursed world and to the comforts that it affords. Because those comforts are nothing but a mirage and they cannot satisfy. Only He, only He satisfies. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.